Hi there, I'm Stacey Lindsay, a co-host of the Scarlet Society podcast. Today, my guest is Athena Lamnosos. Athena is the CEO of the Eve Appeal, a national charity based in the UK that's raising awareness around gynecological cancers for women, trans men, and non-binary individuals. Now, here's a sobering fact. In the US, 33,000 people die of a gynecologic cancer every year. And so many of us don't even know what to ask our doctors. I, for one, didn't even realize there are five gynecologic cancers as ovarian cancer gets all the spotlight. Athena and I talk about all of this and so much more. We talk about what to know, what to ask our doctors, how we can start to break the stigma around learning about gynecologic cancers and our health and the preventative care to know. Athena is an absolute wealth of information and she's a true warrior for our health. So here's my conversation with Athena Lamnosos. You're listening to the Scarlet Society Podcast, the show that encourages women over 40 to be excited, curious, and even turned on by starting the second half of their life. This is the show for support, community, and conversation about everything that goes along with this season, from sexual health and wellness to sexual exploration, finances, monogamy, and relationships. No topic is off limits. Let's dive in. I'm here with Athena Lemnosos, CEO of the Eve Appeal. Athena, thank you so much for spending time with us. You're welcome. Always happy to talk about gynecological issues. Let's dive in. I have so many questions. And um, as I was saying to you earlier too, just learning more about the Eve Appeal and your mission, I've learned so much just about my health and things I need to be aware of. Um, starting out, the Eve Appeal, you're a national charity. You're based in the UK. You're raising awareness around gynecological cancers for women, trans men, non-binary individuals. Athena, talk us through um, what your mission is in your work. Yeah, sure. So there are five gynecological cancers, and that always surprises everyone. Five. You know, you see people kind of trying to count on their hands and kind of going, cervical um uh you know what else is there and that's really dismaying because you know 42% of the cancers that affect women are quite specific to us as women they're hormone associated cancers um and you know breast cancer is included in that but the gynecological cancers it's really important for everyone to know about so the Eve appeal has a razor sharp focus on raising awareness of the signs symptoms risk factors of those cancers but also of specifically of raising awareness of the signs and symptoms so you can detect them early. So we're not talking, I mean, of course, we are talking to people with cancer, but we're not just talking to people with cancer like many other cancer charities and NGOs are. We're talking to everyone about how to stop themselves from getting cancer. And we do mean everyone because it's really important whether you have a womb or you don't have a womb that, you know, you will know someone and love someone who does and who you want to look after their health. And one of the very important things about these cancers is that they are surrounded in taboos. People find them hard to talk about. They're underfunded. They're underprofiled. And so talking to everyone makes it that much more important. What we do as a charity, we do three things. And I mean, we are based in the UK, but um, 
the main thing that we fund is medical research. And that's done everywhere. You know, we're funding research in many countries, in academic institutions. The whole um, mantra of that research is that it's best, you know, it's world class and that it's focused on what we're focused on, which is prevention, early detection, new screening programs, a lot of work around genetics. You might have heard about um, the BRCA gene. So quite a lot of people call that the Angelina Jolie gene because she's quite famously talked about her family history, talked about her genetic mutation. I can come on to talk about genetics some more. But so we do three things. We fund medical research and that's funded not just in the UK, but all over the world. We've got a very big program at the moment at McGill in Canada, looking at a rare form of ovarian cancer, which affects very young women, um, usually in their early 20s, late teens to early 20s, a really devastating form of ovarian cancer. The second thing that we do is we run awareness campaigns and education programs. We've just launched a schools education program and we run campaigns through the year um, around awareness raising, Apologies for my dog um, <laughs> around awareness raising of signs and symptoms. And then the third thing that we do and the only direct service that we run is a nurse service called Ask Eve. We employ gynae oncology specialist nurses and the whole mantra of that service is it's free to use, it's taboo free, no question is too small. No question is too embarrassing. And the whole point of the service is sometimes people find it much easier to put their question in an email or to speak about it over the telephone rather than talking to a, a, a GP, a doctor face to face. And one of the things that you find with the gynecological cancers is that people have noticed that something has changed. They've noticed that there's something that's different but they've been too embarrassed or they haven't known that it could be a sign or symptom of cancer. So they haven't sought medical help until it's quite late. And as we know with cancer, the later the diagnosis, the poorer the prognosis. So the whole point is to keep people well and to make people really body aware. It's incredible. And I want to go back and talk about some of the stigma around it and some of the biases mm. when we look at this. I am a cis woman. I was astounded. I didn't realize there are five gynecological yeah. cancers. Yeah. And again, I'm a cis woman and I, and I want to read some of these very, very upsetting, sobering facts mm. I have here, here in the U.S. Again, you're based in the U.K. I'm in the U.S. Mm. The American Cancer Society estimates there's about 33,000 deaths a year related to gynecological cancers mm. and more than a hundred thousand cases per year. In the UK, um, and Thena, uh, please fact check me on this, but 7,700 deaths, is that correct, related mm -hmm. to around that gynecological cancers yeah. in the UK? Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's astounding. That's upsetting. Mm -hmm. And you're talking about research is underfunded. Yeah. Um, talk to me about this lack of awareness and yeah. um, what's behind this? Yeah, sure. I mean, there are lots of different factors behind it. And I mean, in the UK alone, you know, it's, it's, um, about 58 women a day who are diagnosed with a gynecological cancer. And that's so, it's so uh, upsetting to think that the first time they've even heard of one of those diseases is when they're sitting in a small white room being told by a doctor in a white coat that they've got one and they're astounded that they could have got womb cancer or endometrial cancer as, as it's often uh, often called um so you know that is really distressing what's really distressing is that of those 58 
22 of them will die within five years. You know, many of these cancers are really have a really, really brutal prognosis. Ovarian cancer particularly has a really poor prognosis. So low awareness. I mean, there are lots of things that, that are around it. But one of the things is we really do find it very difficult to talk about our reproductive anatomy. You find that from the earliest age, people are using euphemisms they don't really know, you know, they're using euphemisms for part of their for, for part of their body, which is fine if you also know the proper word. But and women's bodies um, are quite different to men's bodies, just by the simple fact that in reproductive anatomy terms, you know, men can just look down or look across in the urinal and you know, you can see a penis and testicles, which is basically what makes up um, the male reproductive anatomy. For um, for women, it's really quite different. You know, it's either between our legs, so it's hidden, or it's within our pelvises, and it's much more complicated. So the five gynecological cancers are vulval cancer, which is on the increase, vaginal cancer, which is the rarest of the gynecological cancers, um, cervical cancer, which is the one that most people have heard of. I know that you don't have a national cervical screening program in the US, but in the UK we do. And in many countries, there is a national screening program. But I think that everyone um, to an extent is aware of screening, even if they don't attend or they can't afford to attend or they're not called to attend and it's not compulsory, they're aware of cervical screening. And cervical cancer is a really interesting case. Cervical cancer is theoretically, it's a preventable disease now. It's the only cancer where we can spot cell changes before they're cancerous and intervene. So that's what your cervical screening appointment, sometimes called your pap smear, um, is, is for. So you can spot those cell changes before they're cancer. But also, really importantly, you know, we know what the biggest risk factor is. Over 99% of cervical cancers are caused by a virus called HPV. HPV is a risk factor in many, in many other cancers as well. But we can vaccinate against HPV. And that's a really, really powerful thing to be able to do. But what's really depressing in the UK, where we have a free national screening service, is we are at a 30-year all-time low in terms of people going for their attend attending their cervical screening appointment. It's astonishing. And then we know there are lots of reasons why different groups don't attend. And I know in the US there are particular groups with communities that don't attend. For lot, you know, there are lots of reasons around, around that, around access, service provision, how the services are configured. But one of the reasons people don't attend, which comes up again and again in research, is they are quite straightforwardly embarrassed about showing their bodies to a medical practitioner. You know, that's just astounding to me. And there's probably more of an embarrassment factor in the UK than other countries where you're used to going to a gynecologist. There's no culture of going to a gynecologist on an annual basis um, in the UK. The UK system is very much set up that you have one main doctor who's called your GP, your general practitioner, who you see about any medical concern, and then they refer you to a specialist. So most people don't see a gynecologist on a regular basis, um, which actually can be, you know, a real way of opening up the conversation, talking about contraception, 
talking about other issues to do with your um, sexual health, your reproductive health, you know, having your, your smear tests, etc. And generally being kind of much more open to having those kinds of conversations. The other reason is that the cancers themselves really are underfunded and underprofiled compared to other cancers. So even if you just do a very straight comparison with breast cancer, for example, breast cancer at one time was very difficult to talk about, which is why we have things like the Pink Ribbon campaign, which is, you know, ubiquitous around the world now, and it's become much easier to speak about. But that took quite a time and quite a lot of work of the research community coming together, um, uh, people affected by those cancers speaking out, um, a lot of powerful brands coming on board. And you can't underestimate the power of beauty brands, for example, taking on something like the breast cancer message and making it much more kind of everyday, much more. And you walk into a store, you see it, you make the association. Um, and that hasn't really happened yet for the gynecological cancers. And that's why we're working so hard on making these this this conversation an everyday one and one without embarrassment. It's astounding. I mean, that's what we're trying to do here at Scarlet Society is just make gynecological health, sexual health, a part of everyday conversations. Everything. Yeah. Everything. I'm 41 years old and I feel like I finally maybe have permission to start saying vagina in a conversation. Yeah. And maybe I got that permission a couple of years ago, which is ridiculous. Yeah. And you bring yeah. up such an interesting point, Athena, is we sometimes have these alternate names. And that starts really young too. I mean, these yeah. kind of goofy names. Oh, and then yeah. there's shame encased around that. Don't say the yeah. real thing. Don't say penis. Yeah. Don't say vagina. Don't say yeah. anus. Yeah. Um, and I think that perpetuates an issue. And absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Using proper anatomical words is really important. I mean, okay, if you're, you know, language, people don't speak the same way in front of their grandparents as they do in front of your fr their friends. And that is understood, you know, that you might at home use euphemisms and nicknames for things. But if you don't know, it comes up again and again through the research that we do with clinicians. They find it really hard when someone comes in and will only say down there or will talk about their waterworks when they're not talking about their waterworks at all. They've got a pain in their pelvis or they're suffering from bloating or they've got, they've noticed um, that, that they've had a skin change in their, on their vulva, but they cannot say the word vulva. You know, it makes, it makes the whole dialogue with your medical professional really, really difficult when you want to take all of that out of it and just be able to talk about your symptoms, whether it's abnormal vaginal bleeding, whether it's about discharge. You know, these are the kinds of changes that you need to be aware of. You know your body and what you hear continuously um, from people who are diagnosed with cancers at a late stage is they've recognised something was wrong. And if they have managed to go to the doctor, they've found it really difficult to describe and then they haven't described they've had a poor conversation and the doctor has just said take this cream come back in three weeks come back in six weeks and you have this continuous cycle of people sometimes making six you know five or six visits before they're actually examined properly and diagnosed so I want to get to some of the, you have an awareness campaign at the Eve Appeal, and I know you also have a test you can take too. How well do you know your vaginal health, your vulva health? And I took that test this morning, but specifically starting out for, let's talk about preventative care. 
what should we be asking our doctors? I know this differs here in the US. Obviously, we don't have access to healthcare as we do, unfortunately, as people do in the UK. But that's so interesting to hear, though, that it's down 30% in the UK, which is just because we want, I, mm. I think, oh my gosh, I want free screening so badly. Mm. I would kill for that here in the US. Yeah, the global statistics around cervical cancer deaths are horrifying. And that's because there isn't a cervical screening program. It's a cancer that affects younger women. Um, and the World Health Organization actually now has a world, a global eradication campaign because it is an eradicable disease. You know, we really should be preventing every single case of cancer that we can. And we have that power with cervical cancer. So talk to me about preventative care, Athena. What should we be asking our doctors? Um, I want to go back to the pap smear too, because yeah. that's one word that we all know about. And what yeah. does the pap smear cover? Um, and kind of a checklist for people listening if yeah. when they yeah, go to sure. get their care. Yeah. So what you should be aware of, and obviously your body changes with life stages, but you should be aware of your hormone history. You should be aware of what contraception you've used, when your period started, how regular your periods are. You should be aware of your, your bleeding and you should be aware of everyone is aware of kind of checking their chests, checking their breasts. But do, do you know what the skin on your vulva looks like? Vulvas all look completely different and that's normal for them to look completely different. But do you know what yours looks like and what the skin looks like? So would you notice if there was a skin change? Do you know what your pelvis feels like and what, what what it would feel like if it was bloated? So one of the key symptoms of ovarian cancer is bloating. And that can be confused with so many other things, you know, IBS and coliac disease. And, you know, there are lots of reasons why we're bloated. It's quite specific with ovarian cancer. It's bloating that, that um, doesn't come and go and lasts two or three weeks or more. So, you know, you are bloated for an extended period of, of time. In terms of what you ask your doctor, you should go to the doctor whenever you notice a change to your bleeding, to your discharge, and if you have had any abnormal bleeding. Now, abnormal vaginal bleeding, obviously, people people have, you know, different period cycles, etc. But that's bleeding after sex. That's bleeding after menopause. No amount. If I could get people to take away one single message, it would be no amount of postmenopausal bleeding is normal. There's no last hurrah period. There's no that you always need to be checked by a doctor if you are menopausal, which means it's been a year since your last period. That's what that's what um, the definition of being postmenopausal is. And if you if you bleed after that point. It's not normal. You do need to be checked. It may not be cancer, but you do need to be checked. In terms of what you ask your doctor in relation to um, HPV and your pap smear. So HPV, have you been vaccinated and should you be vaccinated? So in many countries, and the UK is one of them, um, the HPV vaccination is part of the school's immunization, immunization program. So you're vaccinated at around 12 or 13 within the school system. It is efficacious to have it done later on. And if you haven't been vaccinated or you missed the vaccine for whatever reason, that is something you should talk to your GP about. It's also quite easily available, um, freely available privately. Um, and that's something that you can consider. But your first port of call should be to your GP 
who will talk through your age and whether it's still worth you being vaccinated. So being protected against HPV is really important. HPV is a really clever pretty evil little virus. We will all come into contact with HPV um, if we have any kind of sexual contact. So not just penetrative sex, not just sex and cis sex, um, any kind of sexual touching, any kind of genital touching, you may come into contact with HPV. It's a really commonly occurring virus. 80% of us will come across it. Most of us just flush it out. It's like any virus. We wouldn't have any symptoms. We wouldn't know anything about it. For some of us, it stays around our bodies and it becomes a risk factor for for cancer. And that's why the pap test is important because the pap test does two things. You do it and it comes into kind of two stages now. The first is to see whether you have active HPV and whether it's one of the strains of HPV, because there are many strains um, that can cause cancer. And if you have, you're asked to come back again for a subsequent appointment. And also if you're if you um if you're HPV positive, you are referred to have the cells on your cervix looked at to see whether there have been any cell changes. Now even if there have been cell changes, it still doesn't mean you have cancer. It means you might have precancerous cells and those can be dealt with and those can be treated before they develop into cancer. HPV has no gender. It's not just that boys and girls can contract it. It's also that it, it's a risk factor for other cancers. So um, the um, throat and neck cancers, which I think about 90% of those diagnoses are actually m- male, um, is a, HPV is a risk factor. It's one of the risk factors for vulval cancer. You know, there are lots of good reasons to protect yourself and to understand HPV. So One other thing that you should be asking your doctor is not just about the vaccine, but also about your, you know, where you are in your pap screening. And um, every every country has a different kind of um, uh, uh, timeline in terms of how often you're screened. But sometimes that's every year. Sometimes it's every three years. um, And we're just moving to every three years, actually, in the UK. but the important thing is that you are regularly screened and you should be screened right up until the age of 65. Can men be vaccinated for HPV as well? Yes, yes. Yeah, and um, uh, the schools program is for boys and girls. Um, and that's really important. You know, that really is very important because, you know, it really doesn't have a gender as a um, disease. Mm-hmm. It, it you know, it affects both boys and girls and it makes no sense. Oh, I know what I was going to say to you. We get some extraordinary and really upsetting phone calls to our Ask Eve nurse service. So, for example, people who um, have been for their um, cervical screening, they've been for their pap smear and they found out they're HPV positive and that really concerns them if they don't know anything about HPV and they understand it to be in some, you know, a sexually transmitted disease. And we get questions like, does this mean my boyfriend's been cheating? Does this mean, you know, I should be questioning my husband? And it doesn't mean any of those things. HPV can live in your body for a long time, you know, and, you know, it could be to do with an encounter you had 20 years ago. You know, it it really, really doesn't have anything to do with how many sexual partners you have had. And and that can be really upsetting for people and just adds to the stigma in a kind of very different way, um, which um, is, is, you know, is really upsetting, really upsetting. 
And I'm glad you brought that up as well too, but just to reiterate um, how you call it sneaky, how sneaky HPV is. Um, for somebody who may be wondering, well, Athena, I've had sex, but I've always used protection. I've always used condoms. You know, I've been really, really safe. Mm. I imagine that's still, you're still at risk. Everyone is at risk. Yeah, if you've had I mean, any it, sexual will be, it will be low risk, but you are still at risk. You know, uh, you know, condoms don't cover the whole of your genitals and HPV can be spread from skin to skin contact. You know, that's the, that's the, 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 the truth of it. And, you know, and then if you think about other forms of sexual activity, whether it's oral sex, where you may not be using condoms, there are all sorts of ways that HPV can be transmitted. Unless you, unless you are a very well kind of behaved nun or monk, you know, and you don't, you don't have any form of sexual activity, you are very likely to come into contact with HPV in, in your lifetime. You're also very likely just to process it like any other virus and it not to have any impacts on you. Unfortunately, for some people, that is not the case though. Going back to the stigma again, have you found, is there any way to kind of lessen the sting for some people? So if going to the doctor feels like you're kind of encased in shame or you're just nervous or mm. you don't even want to talk about it, are there any talking points or kind of a buddy system that you felt that has helped to encourage this? Because again, we want to start talking about this. I want to scream it from the rooftops. I want to go and take yeah. all of my friends um, yeah. and accompany them to any care they need. But how can we start talking about this and helping people in a way you know, extending on all the work you're doing to break yeah, this. Yeah, I mean, I think that I think that's a really good question, and one of the things that that we've done, I'll send you some links to some of the resources, is we developed a set of conversation starters. So questions like, you know, about when was your first period, and you know, tell me a story about that, so so that it makes it easier to talk to your friends about it. Um, the other thing that we always say to people, um, we we produce some kind of top tips for going to a gynae appointment to make it a gynecological appointment to make it easier for you. And one of the things that we do say is, you know, if you would like to take a friend, do take a friend with you, um, because that can be something that, that, that helps some, some people do think about what you're going to wear so you're really comfortable you know there is nothing worse than someone who has no idea what a screening what cervical screening is going to involve turning up for their cervical screening appointment with a you know jumpsuit on that only does up you know up the front um with very little underwear on underneath so they're basically you know they're naked on the on the bed whereas if they'd worn a skirt and they just needed to take down their underwear and jump up and you know they'd have felt much much more comfortable about it all. It's an absolute truth that knowledge is power. So the more you know, and the more you find out, the more confident you are about talking about these things. And that's a, that's a really, you know, major way of, of overcoming the stigma. And then normalizing these conversations, normalizing them with your friends, normalizing them within your family. And it's never too young to start, you know, with children, you know, really thinking about and agreeing with all the people who are part of that child's life, you know, how are we going to talk to them from the point from the point where you're changing their nappies, you know, and so you're not pulling faces and because your body language is part of shame and stigma as well. If you can't sort of talk about things without visibly flinching, you know, um, I saw someone in a corporate meeting that I was in uh, a couple of days ago, he visibly flinched when the word menopause was mentioned. I mean, it was just, and he really didn't mean to, but he clearly, you know, there just wasn't part of his language or a conversation that he had ever been used to having. Well, he's got a mom who I would 
pretty much guarantee has probably been through the menopause. And, um, you know, it needs to be a conversation that's, that's, you know, that's had. It's often the way, so when you ask about how do we get people more comfortable, it's often the way that people um, use the Ask Eve Nurse service. So what they'll almost do is use it like a run through of how they're going to talk to their doctor. So, you know, they will ring and say, I think this is a symptom. Do I describe this and what should I be asking for? And should I mention, is there, you know, one of the cancers that I should mention, um, you know, as a particular thing that I'm worried about? And I think that, you know, it is that classic knowledge, knowledge is power thing. But we do need to make these conversations every day. And we do need to make sure that we go into kind of the retail spaces, the commercial spaces, the workplaces, you know, lots of employers are very worried about the well-being of their staff and supporting their staff well-being, whether it's about nutrition or heart health or um, mental health, stress. You know, we need to talk about these issues as well. You know, they will have probably 50% of their workforce who are menstruating you know, talk to them about periods. That's a really important thing. That's a really important thing to do. And you have to think about all of the different ways that stigma are compounded. And one of them is, you know, you go into, you know, pretty much any any supermarket in the UK. I don't know if it's the same in the States. I bet it is. Um, and you go into any pharmacy and there's a whole aisle that's dedicated to feminine hygiene, this whole range of feminine hygiene products. You don't have masculine hygiene products. And all of these things compound the kind of idea that somehow women's bodies are the dirtiest, smelliest place on earth, you know, and they're not, these products aren't necessary. You know, it's washing with soap and water is as good as anything. Um, And in fact, you know, a lot of feminine hygiene can be very damaging because, uh, you know, your, your vaginal biome is very important. It's very protective. It stops you getting infections. You know, a lot of the over-counter things, uh, um, things that you can, you know, you're almost disguising symptoms. We often find that people who have had vulval cancer symptoms for some time have been using over-the-counter things for either sort of mild diseases like thrush or um, they thought they had UTIs or they've been using feminine hygiene products thinking, oh, I just need to disguise, you know, the smell or the skin or, you know, it's um, it's really, you know, all of those things really add to a sense of, of stigma and shame. And Athena, here at Scarlet Society, we really, um, we want to talk to every woman, every non-binary individual, of course, anybody yeah. who's interested in yes, their absolutely. their anatomy, their anatomical yeah. health and their sexual health. Exactly. But specifically for um, individuals, non-binary individuals, trans men, women over the yeah. age of 40, is there anything yeah. specific that 40 plus women that you'd like to say and that we should know? Yeah, well... I mean, if you look at the data around these diagnoses, most of them, uh, you know, the majority of, di- of people who are diagnosed are postmenopausal or just in that sort of perimenopausal phase. I mean, one thing that's really important is so important to be fiercely inclusive about issue about these issues and and, and communications around them, because you know, if you have a cervix, it needs to be screened. So trans men 
may have had top surgery. They may have had some elements of bottom surgery. They probably haven't had their cervix removed. Trans women, by contrast, probably haven't had their prostate removed. So, you know, they need to be aware of the signs and symptoms of prostate cancer and make sure that they're alert to any any changes. So it's really important to be inclusive, to make sure that the that particularly people from communities with the highest barriers to accessing healthcare and health services, that they feel supported, that they know that they can ask for a smear test if they haven't been called for one. Sometimes it can um, get really lost in medical systems. If you've changed your gender and you're now identifying as male, for example, you may be taken off the list for certain tests. So to really make sure that you are being checked for everything that you should be being checked for, that goes for breast screening as, as well. Obviously, if you've, if you've, if you have, um, you know, you are now identifying as a different gender and you've changed that on your medical records, etc. Um, really important for you to take support with you into the room and to feel really comfortable about the process. So one of the things that makes people feel really comfortable is if they've seen the equipment, they know what a speculum looks like. They may be held a speculum. They can ask their nurse or their, their, their smear test, their pap screen taker, whether they can guide the speculum in um, or help them guide it in so they feel really in control of that whole process. And then I think the most important thing is to always be able to say stop or no or that's hurting, you know, if it is. And one of the things that we um, try and educate both doctors and patients about is um, that there are many people who have been affected, for example, by sexual trauma, um, and to always check with people first. So before doing an internal examination, not to say, you know, have you been subject to sexual trauma, but to say, is there anything I should be aware of? This is what I'm going to be doing. Is there anything I should be aware of that's happened to you? Or, you know, do you want to tell me anything, you know, before I begin, this is what I'm going to be doing. And that really kind of helps people of all ages, particularly people who are, you know, in their 40s, 50s, 60s, um, who, you know, want to feel in control of that in that situation. That's so powerful because so much of the time, and I know I can speak only from my lived experience, but you do, you feel out of control. Sometimes you feel like a number. Sometimes you feel like you, well, can't, you can't speak say up. No. Yeah. You can't yeah. say no. And I appreciate yeah. you saying that so much that it is to remind yeah. everybody it is your body at the end of the day. Yeah. You are going for your care, love yourself, you know, have integrity yeah. with yourself and to know that you can speak up. And yeah. educate yourself too, and say no yeah. if something doesn't right feel right. Or yeah, Athena, thank you so much for all of this. No, um, no, this has you. been above and beyond a wealth of information for listeners. Um, again, the Eve Appeal. How can we support your work? I know you work with a team of scientists, of researchers, of warriors, really across across the globe. How can we how can we find your work and how we can we support you, Athena? Well, head over to our website, which is eveappeal.org.uk. Follow us on all of our social channels. We have a really, really fantastic, particularly our Instagram um, feed is full of information, really empowering, upbeat, really insightful. 
We have a lot of downloadable resources. So we've got a lot of resources around HPV. We've got tailored information for non-binary and trans men. So if you need specific information, please do come to us. We've also developed some easy read information. There's a large audience of people affected by learning disability who are often excluded from a lot of kind of sexual health and gynecological um, health information. And I think it's really important that we reach them with information about cervical screening, etc. So we've got tailored information for, for those groups as well. Um, but at Eve Appeal is the social media channel, uh, social media handle across all of our channels. And so do follow us and support. And we're a charity. So fantastic if anybody wants to support the world-class research that we um, carry through and the nurse service, which is, you know, a much, much needed, um, free at the point of use, and most importantly, taboo-free um, service. Well, your work is tremendous and so, so, so needed. Athena Lamnesos, thank you so thank much. You. Thank you for taking the time. I've learned so no, much in this conversation, and I hope it's one of many conversations. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to today's show. Your support means so much to us, and I hope you got some great value from today's episode. If you're looking for resources from today's show, or you'd like to join other women just like you, looking to explore their sexual health and wellness, visit us over at scarletsociety.com 